You have read that Muad'Dib had no playmates his own age on Kaladan. The dangers were too great, but Muad'Dib did have wonderful companion teachers. There was Gurney Halleck, the troubadour warrior. You will sing some of Gurney's songs as you read along in this book. There was Thufir Hawat, the old Mentat master of assassins, who struck fear even into the heart of the Padishah Emperor. There were Duncan Idaho, the swordmaster of Ginaz, Dr. Wellington Yui, a name black in treachery but bright in knowledge, the Lady Jessica, who guided her son in the Bene Gesserit way, and, of course, the Duke Leto, whose qualities as a father have long been overlooked, from a child's history of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. Spice World, an inebriated exploration of Frank Herbert's Dune. My name's Derek. And my name is Mike. And this week, we are back for chapter four, and I believe a new bottle of wine. Oh, yeah. So Who did you pick up? Yeah, this time I, uh, I wanted to get something a little, you know, uh, space-themed, uh, which I was very difficult, actually. They don't have a lot of options there. There's not, not many space Not lines. for $10, which is my working budget week to week. Mm-hmm. But uh, what I got here is called Stellar Organics, and that was the closest I could get. And looking at, I, you know, I didn't even look at the tasting notes on this, but uh, I guess it doesn't really matter. There are none. Grapes. That's what I got on here. They have grapes in the wine. I would have guessed. If they aren't going to say anything, we might as well take some leeway and say it is spice. Actual spice. This is some uh, grade A melange right here. Can't prove it's not. It's true. Probably wouldn't be $10, though. <laughs> That's <is> very accurate. <laughs> you might have a little more of a chome tax on that. So, uh, yeah, no, check your eyes out in the mirror after this one, Derek. You never know. Well, that's awesome. It tastes delicious so far. Yeah, no, I'm liking it so far. But as I did say, we are back for chapter four. Mm-hmm. We are in Castle Caladan still, but we are out of the morning room finally. 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 We've been in that room this whole time? We did. We, oh, yeah, my God. Only, we went to Harco, and then we came right back to oh, that the same room. How you forget about Harco. Uh, Paul did leave the room to go to a soundproof room <laughs> and then came back to join us in the morning room. Uh, we're now down the hall, I believe, in the training room. Of course. You know, who knows how far we've actually made it. Right, and there's like some cool things in this training room. Yeah, this thing is uh, full of some deadly implements. All right, all right. Uh, on top of this physical move in the castle, we're also moved in time. Okay. It's been, uh, I think, uh, it said a week. Yeah, uh, that's since right. Since last time. That's right. Six days. Six days, which was very confusing for me because I thought Frank Herbert missed a day when Paul references like seven days before they leave, mm-hmm. but... You, you're right. The standard week is six days, so that has passed, and we have one more day until we get on that guild highliner, and we head off to Arrakis. Oh my gosh, we're so close. So close, but there's so many people we still haven't met. Ah, that's uh, right. I mean, biggest of all, the Duke himself, Duke Leto. He's yeah, we're, very like mysterious. We're really us. building up to that one, mm. and I really hope I'm not disappointed. No, I think we're saving the best for last. That said, we're going to start. Uh, within this chapter, we meet two of his teachers. Okay. Did you have a favorite of the two that did come up? Oh, Gurney. Gurney. Gurney Halleck. Gurney. He, he does, you have a lot of overlapping interest, I think, with Gurney Halleck. Oh, he's just a baller. I love this man. The uh, the other guy we get to meet and who shows up first is Thufir Hawat, mm-hmm. who is the house mentat. And we've uh, he's been teased in the previous chapters quite a bit. Right. Uh, a lot of mentions of him. And it seemed like he kind of built and built. 
And now we know on top of him being the Mentat, he is the Mentat uh, master of assassins. Yeah, I, I caught that. I didn't realize um, there was more to him than just being like the uh, Atreides Mentat or even like, you know, being a very good one, a very expensive one. Mm -hmm. Master yeah. of assassins. I, I think you can even say the best one. Uh, feared by the Padishah Emperor. I mean, master of assassins looks great on the resume, to say the least. Mm -hmm. Um, So... I guess I don't want to get too off track already, but like Master of Assassins, like how does one achieve that tank, that the title and rank? So that one is uh, specific to the Mentat school. And after you complete that entire Mentat program, the last thing they can do is give you this assassin training. And it sort of is just the pinnacle of Mentat training and gives them um, so they can be on a war council and handle the logistics of modern warfare in this universe. So do all Mentats get this or just like some? No, not all. Uh, like I, I don't know uh, how to quantify it, but I think it would be a small uh, section of them get this training. Kind of like uh, the eliteness of the Souk school where you're getting like one every five years. Okay. I think you're going to have some limitations, but it would be a lot easier just to get a Mentat who's finished the program that's not a master of assassins. And we know that from the, the second chapter, Piter is an assassin as well. Uh, we don't know if Piter is a master of assassins. Oh, not like a master that. of assassins. Yeah, but I, an I, assassin at least. Yeah, he is. Well, and a twisted mentat. So I right. think that is a product of him being a twisted mentat, is it like the GED version of. Uh... Yeah, because remember, it's a different school entirely. That is the uh, the Benetai Laxlu using the mentat system to create these things. Okay, so you're kind of comparing apples and oranges in some respects. Uh, Peters and Piters. Peters and Piters, if you will. <laughs> So this chapter did start off with a interesting quote from Irulan again, mm -hmm. where we go through the mentors in Paul's life and right. kind of name them off one by one. We get Gurney Halleck, the troubadour warrior. Yeah. Yeah. So your favorite, the musical part of them is really I, fun. I really enjoy that he's a musician like fighter. Mm -hmm. It's just great. Uh, I, we're going to go into his story uh, definitely at the end of this, but he does put music first. Above just, all just, things? Yeah, above yeah. all things. Like, music is the priority there. Um, we have Thufir Hawat, the old Mentat of Assassins, which we just kind of covered. Then uh, this guy is a new one, uh, Duncan Idaho, the Swordmaster of Ganaz. Yeah, have we heard this name yet? Is this the first time? I think I think it is the first time he's come up in this. Uh, and I got to tell you, you're going to have to wait a little bit longer. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, because he, 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 yeah, he's not even here right now. He's not. He, so he's not going to be in this chapter, and you'll actually find out he's uh, he's not here currently. Or, yeah, Gurney mentions it. That, yeah. Uh, so Duncan's already gone off to Arrakis. And he was sent there uh, with, like, the first or the second, second wave, wave of troops that are going over. Uh, the next one we meet is Dr. Wellington Yui, a name black and treachery. So he's our, our betrayer, which they love to just keep telling us about. Right. Uh, right up until the moment he does it, I guess. No big reveal there. <laughs> and finally, uh, this quote ends off with the two people probably closest to Paul. It's got to be Lady Jessica and the Duke Leto. Right. Sending his two parents. Uh, and then again, the Duke Leto, whose qualities of a father have long been overlooked. Just a little teasing to get you ready for when he does mm. show up, that this guy is a great father, too. Um, so I like that that just kind of highlights each figure of House Atreides and how they influence Paul in some mm. manner. So when this chapter starts, like I said, we are in the training room. Mm -hmm. This is everything's moved out. Room's kind of empty at this point. There's, There's like a table and a training dummy is about it. Something uh -huh. along those lines. Yeah, and Paul's just kind of studying away. 
uh, very specifically placed with his back to the door. Mm-hmm. And then that door slips open, and one guy kind of creeps into the room. We get to meet Thufir. Thufir Hawat. And I just like, his entrance is very much like a master of assassins. Very sneaky, very subtle. I got very very cat-like, it kind of just seemed. Oh, okay. He just kind of creeps in, looks around, you know, clocks Paul, not with his back there, clears his throat, and then we get, of course, a little bit of a snippy Paul, who... Definitely more fun than when they were dealing when he was dealing with the Reverend Mother. There's a little more give and take uh, when he deals with Hawa and Halleck together. So he teases uh, Hawa and says, "Like I knew you were coming. I could hear you." Right? It's like I know, I know. My back's to the door because Thufir uh, just sort of first thing he says is, "Never have your back to a door." That's like, how you get killed. The one rule I've been teaching you this whole time. Uh, but then even Thufir in his head kind of acknowledges that Paul would be able to tell the difference. That training his mother's giving him is showing. Right. And he says that uh, that witch mother, doesn't he? Yeah, that witch. He does not like the Bene Gesserit. Uh, I don't know if you got that feeling. Yeah, no, I, he's used witch a couple times in here. Anytime. So, we, yeah, we'll go into the when he's talking about the Reverend Mother. But every time he brings her up, it's a very negative connotation. He's mm-hmm. very suspicious of everything they're doing. Um, but also doesn't have a full understanding of their capabilities. And mm-hmm. I think that kind of shows with the generalness that he refers to the training Jessica's giving Paul. Okay. It doesn't seem like he has full knowledge of what Paul's learning or how Paul's doing these things. Right. But an appreciation for the facts that empirically he is and can do these things. So Paul is there, he's studying and Thufir has been sent by the Duke to test Paul. Right, uh, one last time on Caladan. Mm-hmm. Now, he doesn't actually test him in the chapter, and I think Paul starts reciting all the things he's studying, which I just take as um, what, uh, ha- um, what how it was looking for. Uh, so he, he just Demi- presents his finished homework pretty much, and Thufir's like, okay, well, that, uh, you got it, buddy. Yeah, demonstrate that he's understanding, that he's researching, and he's invested in what he needs to be invested in, like learning about this new world he's going to. Asking and, the right questions and everything. Mm-hmm. Maybe even specifically the, uh, you know, Hawat takes a little satisfaction that he's hammering in the dangers of the world to Paul. Right, and we get to learn a little bit more about... Uh... Oh, all, as well. all kinds of things about Arrakis. Uh, I, I love that little stream of consciousness. And Paul's mind is going all over the place. It's true. He hits every subject. Thufir barely answers the question before Paul's on to his next one. That's true. There was a, a fun thing in here that uh, I liked right before we um, dove into the conversation between Paul and Thufir. And mm-hmm. it was Thufir seeing an old, the, the old target dummy in the corner of the room. Was uh, passion padded up, looking like an ancient foot soldier maimed in battle, uh, in battle and war, and he just has like a simple thought to himself, like mm, "There I stand," or "There stand I," there stand whatever he said. Um, how old is Thufir? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. Uh, Thufir at this point is a hundred and sixteen years old. Oh, that's uh, like some of the melange there. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. Uh, the melange can extend your life two to four times as long. Depending wow. on when you started to ingest it and the size of the dose when you started at the age. Okay. Uh, so it takes a while. But Thufir is going to have a long life. He does refer to Paul as the third generation Atreides he's been training. Wow. So he knew Paul's grandfather was the one who hired him way back in the day. That's wild. When they still had money. 
when they yeah when they were coming up and oh I mean Hawa he was really young at that time mm-hmm. uh, I think he was about 23, 23 to thirty so he's probably not recognized as like the best yeah the best. yeah exactly like I think he was really good but uh, his uh, experience is definitely what's made him the best mentat in the in the universe mm. do we get to learn a little bit more about his past as we go through this book or is that sort of hush hush not so much in the book but I got a little bit for you from the encyclopedia that we're gonna go through today. Uh, I'll give you a little bit of backstory, and I think I can kind of color in why he's so suspicious and distrustful of the Bene Gesserit. Okay. But you're going to have to wait for that. Ah, oh, there! Uh, for now, let's dig into uh, Equally as Cool, Mike. Let's okay. dig into a little okay. bit about Arrakis. Um, All right, let's do this. So far, you have just seen a candy model of this in the Baron's <laughs> office. Is it made of candy? I mean, you know, he just pretty- <laughs> all he could think about was candy looking at it. Uh, caramel and this globe. and that. And a little bit from the Reverend Mother telling us some enigmatic uh, bits. Mm -hmm. But now we have Paul referencing what he's been studying. So the first thing he talks about are uh, Coriolis storms. Mm -hmm. Did you figure out what those were? Coriolis? Yeah, the Coriolis storms that we are. uh, These ones that are going to roll across Arrakis. Uh, Coriolis. Isn't Coriolis force the term used of like movement of wind around the equator? Oh, yeah. I don't know the exact definition, but I think it's that the movement from the rotation of the Earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or it's like it's an imaginary force, basically. What contributes to yeah, it. Yeah, what contributes to it. Because that's the point that's moving fastest than any other point on the planet. Mm-hmm. So these, that's what they refer to the storms on Arrakis. And Hawat gives us a little bit of a description that because there's so much just open land and nothing to stop them, these storms just go and just pick up all the energy they can mm-hmm. uh, to the point where they're running at 700 kilometers an hour. 700 kilometers an hour is pretty crazy. And I'm, I uh, compare that to some winds that we see in our solar system. Oh, yeah. I mean, naturally. Yeah. So a category five hurricane is uh, defined as 252 kilometers an hour or higher. Okay. So we're definitely cat five. We're definitely cat. We would be like cat six <laughs> or seven. If you get... If uh, 252 is how you get to five, like, I don't know what we'd be on with 700. The fastest, uh, not counting like solar winds or anything, because those aren't technically the same thing. But uh, Uranus has winds of 900 kilometers an hour, which is probably one of the closer things we can relate to. And Neptune has 1200 kilometer per hour winds. I can actually I can get us a little closer. Really? I can get us to 680 kilometers an hour. Where's that? That is the very edge of the great storm on Jupiter. Okay. So that big eye, that eternal storm that's going, uh, not measuring the center, but the most extreme edge that's moving the fastest around. That comes out to about 680. And still not as fast as Arrakis. It's still, yeah, just a little shade. And those, I mean, that's on a gas giant. Yeah, too. I was going to say, that's all, the only all way of those... these are gas giants, which the, is the, the kicker. Yeah, so they have a little more going for them. Uh, mm. How Arrakis pulls this off is crazy. Uh and they talk about how dangerous this storm is. It, it can, will just take down anything. It eats the flesh off of bones and it etches bones into slivers. It, it like you don't survive a storm if you're out there. No, yeah, they just I die. Mean, these cut through metal too. That's, uh, it'll just erode anything. So what do you do uh, when you know a storm's coming? Like where do you hide? Well, <laughs> oh no. Uh, I wish I don't have that quote in front of me from uh, the Reverend Mother, but uh, I believe shelter is a you know a, a cave a notch from the wind. You, you go into a cave. You just have to get out of it and bunker down. Uh, there are parts of Arrakis that are protected from the storms, and that is where the populations generally live uh, that aren't like Fremen or desert folk. Gotcha. Um, 
Paul talks about this. Uh, he, there are no other planets in the universe that seem to have problems with weather because we're able to control weather at this point. We can put satellites in place. We can terraform and do all these things. And Paul just asks how it like, why isn't that the case? Um, you know, with our family moving over there. To which how it just has to break it to him of like, we're not rich. Like we can't afford that. <laughs> we can't afford it. Uh and that the guild wants a dreadfully high price for satellite control. Mm-hmm. The guild controls everything. Yeah. Do you think that's weird at all? That stand out or um, I mean, it didn't really, I mean, we already went in depth with the guild. So, I mean, if we didn't have that knowledge already, this probably would have jumped out to me a bit more. Mm-hmm. But uh, we went pretty uh, in depth with sort of like the major companies, or at least with Chome. I guess yeah. we, we just sort of scratched the surface of the Spacing Guild. Yeah, we? yeah. I mean, I really haven't told you much intentionally about the Spacing okay. Guild. Uh, kind of left it only. I think you only have uh, the Reverend Mother's interpretation of them so far. No one else has really dealt with them. Uh, up until this point, except for now, Hawat can give you a little bit. Uh, he just seems irritated by them. Yep. But I just mean it's- the fact that uh, what do you think would be the unique cost for a satellite in orbit? Hmm. I wonder if it matters what planet it orbits around. Because I imagine their weather controlling uh, devices, if the Harkonnens who currently have control of Arrakis could afford it. And it seems like they really can with all of their wealth. They would have done that. Maybe no, uh, the, the Harkonnens couldn't afford it. What? Are you kidding me? Could you not? Wait, so then can anyone afford it so far? No. Oh my God. Arrakis. So we have weather satellites. Uh, you think we've had, um, we've been mining spice for 10,000 years at this point. We've never put weather satellites on Arrakis. I bet that uh, they just set the price so high because they're not even capable of doing it. That Ooh. the storm is maybe that oh, you, powerful. You, you, and you, to save face, it's like, well, if you can pay this much, we'll take care of it. I like it. That, that is a good cover. Keep moving, yeah. moving the bar a little bit. And I, I got no other true answer for you. I just wanted to see what you were uh, kind of pondering for I, that. I, I thought like- it was, it's an obvious hook that they leave out for mm-hmm. you to think about because uh, that is so strange. I kind of like that uh, that idea. I think I'm going to try and stick with that and see if maybe I can connect some dots to that later on. If they yeah. like have other things that are like, oh, if you can pay the price. We'll, we'll start a little board on the back and you can start putting <laughs> yarn up tomorrow. Okay, sounds <laughs> good. As we read through this book. Uh, the next little bit they talk about is still keeping on the Fremen. And Paul asks if Hawat's ever seen them. Oh, yeah. To which Hawat gives you a pretty enigmatic answer of uh, likely as not, I have seen them. Like so, they they blend in. He could have. He doesn't really know. Uh, it's hard to tell. So how are they blending in so well? Uh, well, it's just like all the people on the planet. Um, so we have how do I uh, describe this? Actually, the people are kind of divided into two categories. Okay. Uh, you have the Fremen are these desert folk where uh, the Harkonnens don't believe there are many of them. They're on the outskirts kind of uh, of civilization and just a few out there. And they're not in any imperial census, so there's no way to really know. Yeah, so they're like, and they're not living in the towns. They're not paying taxes. They're not really under the Harkonnen thumb as much. And they don't do anything, so the Harkonnens don't care. Exactly. Um, they kind of have competing interests, but, you know, they just kill each other on sight and call it a day. Yeah, well, apparently the Fremen hate the yeah. Harkonnens like passionately which uh i 
maybe I don't quite understand why yet, but uh, Thufir tells Paul, like, don't say that. Like, don't tell anyone that's the case. Yeah, uh, yeah, let me, I'll get to that. Let me just finish this thought on the, uh, the other group is the Fremen, not Fremen, sorry, are the Arakians from the Graben and the Sink, which are the two areas of Arrakis that are kind of like protected from storms. So we were talking about where would you go when that 700 kilometer oh. storm is rolling. These areas are um, places of terrain that are compacted down and usually have high rock uh outcroppings on their edges that sort of protect them. So the storms never roll in. Uh, conversely, the sandworms don't show up uninvited. Right. And so we know there's sandworms. Sand so that there's some fauna on this planet at the very least. There is some uh, terrestrial life forms, but uh, we'll let that all unfold. Okay. Uh, the next subject that Paul brings up, or rather how it says uh, in his line to Paul, and they uh, kind of just think about it for a second, is that uh, still suits. Yeah, so uh, what's a still suit? Still suit is, it's a suit that is kind of like robes, and they are completely sealed around you. Uh, so it uh, covers your body entirely, kind of like a scuba suit, and all of your moisture stays in that suit. So your sweat is recycled in. It's got multiple layers to it, uh, so it sort of like evaporates off your body, cooling your body, and then condenses down in a little catch pocket. Uh, so you have essentially a little camel pack on you at all times. All right. And then you're able to drink that. So that's, that sort of solves the water problem. It helps it, yeah. Okay. Uh, Does everyone have still suits on Arrakis, or is it just a Fremen thing? Um, It is a Fremen thing. They build them and sell them in the cities. Uh, so you can get a still suit. So there is a cl classification. Fremen is top of the line stuff for desert. Okay. Uh, they don't really come into the cities. They do, they trade in stuff in the cities, but you can't buy a Fremen still suit in the cities. Okay. The cities make like secondhand knockoffs of like a Fremen still. So a Fremen would never wear a still suit from the Graven or the Pan kind of place. Okay. Um, but that said, the smugglers and stuff, the Harkonnen workers that are on the planet, they will have like a city still suit. Uh, okay. So it just like it kind of works, but it's whatever. And these people don't adhere to the most, what we're going to learn is called water discipline. Water, okay. Water discipline. It's something the Fremen use. Uh, right. So they're very serious about containing their water. Change my glossary room. <laughs> the, uh, the smugglers still buy water in town and do things like that. So they live uh, a little bit of a, a little bit of a more normal life that we would be used to. Uh, otherwise, a still suit is considered, uh, it would be, be very uncomfortable. Like if you were, I put it on, it's not comfortable until you lose a little bit of your water content in your body. Cause you need to start cycling in. Yeah. Well, like, yeah, it's literally made for you to have less and like, that's how these people live. So when a water plump person, which is what you or I would be, puts it on, it's just it's going to be weird and sticky and tacky. Mm -hmm. It's very strange. Uh, they just make mention that it takes a while before you're actually comfortable in it. Yeah, and he mentions like it smells horrendously. Oh, yeah, they all just well, yeah, if it's just like high heaven. Yeah, oh, man. Oh, I mean, they're not taking showers. There's no water. Yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> no, good point. Yeah. Baking out there in the sun. It is disgusting. And they wear like uh, robes over them and everything, it sounds like. Yeah, so it looks like they have a very uh, like Bedouin look to them, mm -hmm. uh, which is like the uh, Arabic tribes that are nomadic okay. uh, through Arabia. And I thought it was really interesting that while they start talking about water and specifically about still suits, the, uh, it starts to rain on the glass inside the room that they're on. 
and this water just starts to pelt down around them because reminding us we're on this water rich world right where none of this is a concern something he's taking for granted this is like a resource people would kill for yeah very much so mm-hmm. uh it is the most valuable thing as it starts to rain paul looking up thinks of the word water and that triggers a memory in his mind from a week ago and now I'm like, I'm taking you back into the morning room. We're back in the morning room? <laughs> we find ourselves here yet again with Gaius Helamahayam. And I told you before, there were conversations that took place in the middle of the day that we weren't a part of, we had missed. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. So this is one such occasion that All I was right. talking about. And we find out that uh, Gaius Helamahayam had told Paul about what he'll kind of expect and experience on Arrakis. Uh, I got the quote here, if you don't mind. Yeah, oh, go for it, please. She kind of reads out. And I, I love that. And Paul recollecting this, he uh, says it's not he wasn't caught off by her words, but the sing song way that she was sort of saying them. They had a tone to them. So for me, I'm thinking that this is guys Helen Mahayam going back in her memories. Is there, oh, oh, like, from her own. Uh, yeah, like I think this is like a memory from Arrakis potentially. Uh, mainly because of a word that pops up in this, and I'll get to it right in the quote. So let me start in the beginning. You'll learn about the funeral plains, about the wilderness that is empty, the wasteland where nothing lives except the spice and the sandworms. You'll stain your eye pits to reduce the sun glare. Shelter will mean a hollow out of the wind and hidden from view. You'll ride upon your own two feet without thopter or ground car or mount. When you live upon Arrakis, Kala, the land is empty. The moons will be your friends. The sun, your enemy. That's the quote. And the word that like makes me think it's a voice is when she says Kala. Yeah, so what does Kala mean? Kala is a Fremen word, and it is sort of like an expression you would use uh, to like make evil spirits go away when you before you would go on saying something. All right. So just that Kala, the land is empty. It's void. The moons will be your friends. The sun, your enemy. That she sort of sings this out, uh, which makes me think that it's very like tribal memory where maybe this is a song or some sort of lesson that the Fremen learn. Okay. And I don't have any other clues going for that, but just I don't know why else it would be sing song. That's a good that's a good insight, actually. And just the the depths we know she has within mm-hmm. her. Um that I think that would be kind of why she had come. Now, Paul is uh thinking about this and Hawat's watching him and it must have noticed that he's sort of like, you know, off picking daisies in his mind. And he uses a really cool phrase to bring him back to it. Yeah. So if he's what are you uh, what are you wool gathering or were you wool gathering? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, do you have any any thoughts on that phrase? Have you ever heard that before? I've never heard that before this book. Neither. I, I imagine it just means spacing out, though. Mm-hmm. Like when you're doing like a like such a menial task where you just sort of can do it without thinking. Yeah. And I was actually a little delighted to see this. I had forgotten about this word. Okay. And in the last two books, uh, he he harks back to this really hard. And I just remember it coming up very often. I don't remember what character it was, but he specifically is sitting there 
mentions wool gathering like this crosses his mind and then he just goes like oh what what a funny word and he thinks of how old that word must be and how uh no one has actually wool gathered in so many millennia are there any sheep left like there must be somewhere but just as using it as a colloquial phrase like no one should have that in their vernacular on mm-hmm. all these like myriad worlds like no one on arrakis especially is yeah. gonna use uh, <laughs> wool gathering cave sheep yeah uh, so it was a cool one. Uh, I was glad to see, and I'm glad that you kind of caught that too as it was coming through. Mm-hmm. Uh, where it will it will show up in the series later on, and I, I must be something that Frank Herbert has sentimental value for. Hmm. Maybe it's something he's heard in his life. Maybe he's had to gather wool and it's <laughs> like this sucks, <laughs> or he loved it. <laughs> um, yeah. So that sort of like snaps him back, right? Yeah, and then. Paul, he'd been thinking about the Reverend Mother. He asked Hawa about her, uh, if he saw her when she was here. Mm-hmm. And we get Hawa. He is not a fan of the Reverend Mother. Calls her a witch. He says, that truth-sayer witch from the Imperium? <laughs> and uh, his eyes quicken with interest. So right away. So he doesn't he, like them, but he wants to know more about them. And I think that's because he's here to defend House Atreides, and he does not trust the Bene Gesserit. Oh, right. So as he's the master of the spies for this house as well, uh, I think right then he just sees, like, information. I'm a Mentat. I need this information. Tell me everything, Paul, that you can. Unfortunately for Paul. So last week I told you there was some mind control. Yeah, yeah. A little bit of hyperbulb. This is what I meant, where the Reverend Mother had put a block in Paul's mind, to some extent, where he can't tell Hawat um, about the ordeal. Do you think she did that with the voice? I don't know how she did that, to be honest. Um, I don't recall the Bene Gesserit ever using this ability again uh, on anybody hmm. else. So it was very weird and very specific. It, I mean, it must be, actually, and this thought just comes to me now, it must be a product of the Gom Jabbar, because if anyone ever knew about the test going into it, that would jeopardize the entire nature of the test. So you think it's something in that little box then? Oh, no, maybe not the box. I think, I think she did it. Like some sort of hypnosis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, very much like the voice, like you were kind of saying, Mm -hmm. yeah. Hypnosis. Some, I I think it was definitely her doing it. Uh, They don't seem like they use magical devices or technology when they have all of the abilities. When they're magical wizards themselves. Yeah. So I would just never underestimate the Bene Gesserit. Now, Thufir, very suspicious. He tries to pull any information out of Paul that he can. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, Paul finds he's unable to tell Hawat about the ordeal, but he is able to tell him of things she said around that. Uh, and he brings up that um, she mentions that Paul is the descendant of kings but that none of them had learned to lead. And this gets Paul pretty angry. Or learn to rule. Learn to rule, was it? Because like, it says a lot about ruling in this chapter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we end especially with that line of right. like making ruling the art of your tradition, mm-hmm. uh, which is really cool. And But again, we see pride, uh, Paul's pride kind of crop up a little bit when, you know, my father is the duke and he rules this planet. She's and like, she's like, well, he lost the planet. All right, but he got another planet. Oh, well, he's going to lose that one too. Uh, Paul's sort of pushed into a corner at that mm-hmm. point. And uh, within this, uh, this is a sort of a memory of that afternoon. Mm-hmm. We see uh, Jessica comes over at that point 
and you know leans again on the mother and again she shuts him right down this is no hope for him right you go back over there <laughs> puts her in her place uh which is i just always funny uh with her being the lady of the house and this is the only time paul sees someone treat her like that and paul uh keeps talking with her and in the midst of their conversation uh she tells him uh, a really cool concept of learning a world's language mhm and that uh, it's more, it's kind of like more than the sum of the parts of a planet. She's really trying to hammer home, uh, similar to what Hawat was teaching him, uh, where, you know, Hawat, we covered all these forces of nature as well as the people, where, you know, we're talking about the elements of it. And then you go to this um, memory where Gaius Helmaheim is kind of listing those out as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I like the reinforcement of that through each of these. And then uh, finally, she asks him, Maybe even the point of this whole conversation for her, but like, ask Paul, what is it to rule? And what does he think? What does he think? And uh, he responds, yeah. He says, uh, uh, one that commands. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first thing she says is, uh, you got some unlearning to do. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I think it's super funny because uh, Thufir thinks to himself like, Yep, she hit the mark right there. Yeah, that's completely true. So for how much he hates them and distrusts them, he does recognize their logic. I'm like, yeah. that's a good teacher. <laughs> like, <laughs> and he just wants Paul to continue. And then, you know, he's uh, repeating the words that she had said that, you know, this you got to learn to persuade people, not to compel them. I think this is just basically saying don't be a Harkonnen. Uh, you got to mm. lay out. This is an interesting one. Uh, lay out the best carth, uh, coffee hearth to attract the finest men. Now, I don't know if this would apply for you. All I know is the coffee is canon in Dune. Oh, it is. It's good. Uh, when I'd read a little bit of um, Lawrence of Arabia, this was a big thing in the Arab armies. Uh, he makes a point of saying in his biography that they would end up stopping probably like 10 times in a day for coffee. And they drink really small amounts of coffee in just really heavy, like, uh, concentrated doses because they were having, like, basically Turkish coffee. Okay. So the coffee hearth is really important to those cultures, uh, which you can translate over to that's important to Fremen culture. Okay. This is an interesting point why she would mention that, uh, at the, you know, in talking to him here and talking about commanding and controlling while he's on his way to Arrakis. Uh, and we will see that come up within the Fremen. Now, Paul... Is still kind of like standing his ground, and I think we get the last little bit of a uh, him being snippy with Gaius Hella Mahayam mm-hmm. uh, when they're talking about leadership. Because when she's talking about uh, the world's language, Paul brings up religion, and uh, he says the mystery of life that Doctor Yui—that's what Doctor <laughs> Yui calls it. And I think based on what we learned about the missionary protectiva, you can probably figure out how the Reverend Mother feels about religion. <laughs> Like, that is probably all in the panoplia pro-ophetica. I'm mm-hmm. just like, no, we made that myth up. Don't do that. And she gets kind of mad at him and tells him, like, it's not a problem to solve. It's a reality to experience. And Paul re- uh, quits back at her with the first law of Mentat, uh, which is kind of cool to see. We had talked about Mentats quite a bit. So the first law of a Mentat is a process cannot be understood by stopping it. Understanding must move with the flow of the process must join with and flow with it. And that seemed to they'll be like, okay. Yeah. Satisfied her. She sees better it. than the mystery of life. Yeah. Yeah. It, 
you know, you kind of see like her be like, it's sort of like the inverse of uh, Hawa accepting her to be right. And <laughs> she kind of accepting like, all right, that's an okay answer to that. <laughs> It was not only a long day for Paul and Lady Jessica, it was a long day for Gaius as well. Oh my god. And she has just more time with the guild in front of her. <laughs> oh, so, hooray! Just happy, happy thoughts. And we come out of that conversation, snap back into kind of Paul and Thufir. And Thufir lets Paul know a little bit of information that uh, I don't think either of us might have seen coming when this starts off. Okay. And that is, he lets you know about the Fremen. Uh, specifically, I think I might have told you, Mike, that there were 10 Fremen last time. If yeah, I you told me there were like 10 Fremen left. Okay, so you now know that's not true. Okay, yeah, no, he says there's many, many more than the Imperium suspects. Yeah, and he tells Paul that pretty freely, uh, and then he kind of taps his eye and tells him, like, don't tell anybody. Now that's like... Because information is power. It is, but this is actually super critical information. Um, and I want to kind of bring you back to that memory of when Peter doesn't want to tell Fade. Peter? Oh, no, no, I'm a different guy, different <laughs> no, guy. A different one? Uh, okay. Not a mentat. Uh, this is a, the janitor to <laughs> Peter DeVries. Yeah, so the, uh, he walks by and then Peter says. And then Peter says, <laughs> yeah, pops up. Uh, but when Peter doesn't want to share uh, that secret of the plan of the Emperor's involvement with Fade, mm-hmm. and the Baron has to like kind of goad him on to it. Thufir right now is cueing Paul into a really big secret and that he, the Atreides have. He trusts him. He does, without question. Uh, and I think that's a huge difference between the two, like in almost a mutual respect that you mm-hmm. definitely don't see between the other two. Yeah. Uh, now, I, I can't tell you what the secret is just yet. I'm going to let the Duke kind of fill you in a little bit more, and then I'm going to reveal this one. All right. Uh, but the Atreides, they got a little trick up their sleeves that's making the Emperor very nervous. Okay, I'm excited. I, I've, I think we've heard of a couple potential wild cards here with the uh, Missionary Protectiva and the uh, possibly the Fremen. Yeah. I think, uh, so throw in Seleucus Secundus into that mix and yeah, he just start m- thinking about the possibilities. So Paul mentions Seleucus Secundus. Um, is that a planet? Yeah, that is uh, the Emperor's prison planet. Uh, when we talked about the Sardaukar, that is where the Sardaukar come from. Oh, they come from Seleucus Secundus. Yeah, that's like their homeworld, so to speak, especially of the tribe Saudar, of course, for sure. All right. And uh, they are very mysterious. No one knows like anything about the world. Only from, the hist- uh, what's written in history books, pretty much. Yeah, right? like I think like pre-guild times. I wonder if that's going to come up as a, an issue or problem. Oh, I'm sure he mentioned it for no reason. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this book Herbert is, doesn't just put random things out there this, for no this reason. This book is nothing but red herrings. All much. right, so yeah, we no. keep an eye out on that then. Yeah, that, that's an important one. Uh, keep putting the clues together uh, and see what you come up with. That's sort of, I think, the last bit that Howitt shares. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he lets Paul know he's leaving today. Oh, no. He's going to head off for Arrakis. Mm-hmm. So... He, uh, Paul's going to leave tomorrow, but our day's not done yet. No. Um, this is one of my favorite transitions uh, in the mid-chapter as we go from one conversation right. to another because as Halleck leaves, or I'm sorry, as Hawat leaves, Paul goes back into thought 
and he has a really deep thought forming. Yeah, he goes into like this big introspective moment of like, what is the now? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so he's thinking of the uh, nature being a culmination of all of its part, being the culmination of all the parts that exist without like comprehension of the now. Mm -hmm. And then this thought of what is now? And then the door bangs open and in walks <laughs> Gurney Alec with an arm full of weapons. He kicks the door shut with one foot. He's got an instrument slung over his He's back. Got a, yeah, a nine-string guitar, so the ballast uh, strung across his back. And he just hasn't like, what'd you do to Howard? He looks so <laughs> angry. Stuck a barb in him. I love him. And, oh, he doesn't even speak in like full uh, words in this. Like, There's so many apostrophes thrown into what he's saying. Oh, yeah. He's a very, yeah. If you won't, won't you talk, talk, you won't talk. And uh, Paul, you know, no chance. If he has some, t- if he can give one of his mentors shit, he's going to do it. Wait, talk just, about our juxtaposed dualities here. Like, this is great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the cat-like one that comes in, this is the dog. <laughs> <laughs> Sliding on a tile floor into the cupboards. <laughs> Ah, oh, but Gurney is so great. And uh, they have a little banter right as, right up the kick it off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it lets you know that Paul, he likes Gurney the best. Uh, he knows Gurney's deviltries. He's no, he knows Gurney's humor. And I think we get a feeling of that more so than any of the other characters so far, where they he really seems like he's having fun when uh, Halleck walks in. Yeah, well, he treats him as like more of a friend than a teacher. Yeah, the most at, kind of on equal level. He doesn't have anyone his own age, and he's sort of like the most playful in his... Uh... His conversation. Mm-hmm. And uh, Gurney, at this point, uh, he's 56 years old. He's 56 this years old? By leagues, the youngest person we've met. <laughs> uh, maybe the Lady Jessica, but I think everyone else has been over 100 at this point. <laughs> oh, and Fade. Uh, That's right. But they're enemies. They're not real people. Oh, my goodness. Um, so Gurney, Gurney comes in, and he's great. He's throwing those weapons down, and he immediately starts playing a little ditty on the ballast set. Right, he like starts tuning it up. Um, it's what? It's a nine-string instrument. It's got like whatever a multi-pick is weaved throughout the oh, strings. Yeah. That, that's not a real thing. No. Uh, so do you know how uh, flamenco guitarists play? Yeah. Yeah, where they're using multiple fingers at once. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. wonder if the multi-pick is something like that. Oh, but like sort of automatic and like you can... I don't know if it would either go on multiple fingers or maybe like just holding it, it has a few different like barbs to it or something. Uh, well, no, it's not a pick on the hands. It's it's woven in through the strings. So, well, I imagine that like a like you would do with a guitar pick. Mm-hmm. Or you put it at the top of the bridge, you can kind of put it between two and like slide it in. Okay. I, I was imagining it would be something you pull out and then play with. And then it's woven into the strings when you're... What were you thinking it would be? Oh, no, that's a better... That's a... Hmm. I don't know why it'd be called a multi-pick. Hmm. I want to unpack that, but I'm not sure where to start and go. I don't know. Would Could could you make a different noise if the pick was wider or narrower at different points? Yeah. So maybe something like that. Maybe... uh, Hmm. I don't know. Maybe it adjusts Maybe it's just a comb. It just like just hits it with everything. You think this is like a uh, X, and they just forgot the name of a comb, yeah, <laughs> like exactly yeah, generations ago, and we're like, it's a multi pick. That's what that is. <laughs> uh, and he plays he plays a great song. Uh, it's called Galatian Girls. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. Yeah. So yeah, we finally get some music in here. We do. We we got it. And uh, I got you the bars for the song from the Dune Encyclopedia. The the, the sheet music. Sheet music is that um, what you call that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'm glad we got that for two songs. We'll see if we can do anything with it. Um, but I, I love this little ditty and it is 
a pretty vulgar song. Yeah. <laughs> to say the least. I think it's very uh, very becoming of Gurney, though, and sort of tells us the kind of attitude he lives with. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that he has no problem. This is what you do in front of a 15-year-old boy. <laughs> yeah. This is the song you want to hear, kid. And uh, let's do it. And as soon as he finished, uh, Paul lets him know, like, if you, my mom heard you play that song, <laughs> your ears would be on the wall. Uh, and then Halleck's just, like, not even a little bit disturbed by that. Yeah. Just like, yeah. wow. And he makes this weird phrase, and I wanted to talk to you about this. Yeah, you know what? I, I was getting some vibes from it. And I go back and forth of like, I just don't know if this was literal or if this is a euphemism. I'm leaning towards literal now, but mm-hmm. I definitely go back and forth. Uh, let me just read these lines though. Of right, it. right, right. So this is again, like it starts with Halleck kind of pulling at uh, Paul there and Gurney pulls at his left ear and he goes, poor decoration too. These having been bruised so much, listening at keyholes while a young lad I know practices some strange ditties on his balisette. So like that one, I'm like, that sounds like a euphemism. But okay, we'll go on to the next line. And this is Paul uh, responding. So you've forgotten what it's like to find sand in your bed, Paul said. He pulled the shield belt from the table, buckled it fast around his waist. Then let's fight. And it goes back to Halleck. Uh, and his eyes go wide in mock surprise. So it was your wicked hand did that deed. Guard yourself today, young master. And they start to fight. I love, I love that Paul... Uh, so it, like basically pokes the bear and immediately like puts on this stuff, like oh shoot, <laughs> shoot, oh, shoot, oh, shoot. shield. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and just like yeah, I could see him putting sand in a grown man's bed and be like, yeah, that's a joke. Yeah. They I'm, they seem to really heckle each other, which yeah, is great. And great. Yeah. They're uh they're really fond of one another. Uh you'll find each of the mentors really has a reason to be like mm-hmm. uh also consider they've been here since Paul was born. Right. Uh they've been in the service of the Duke. Uh so they've all been training him his entire life. Uh, I would say Thufir probably loves him the most. I mean, like of all these guys, it's he treats him as a friend and teacher, but like he's almost like you know Uncle Thufir and Uncle Gurney. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, they're just one big happy family. I wonder, could you make like a full house on Kaladin? I like think Duke Leto played by Bob Saget. We might not on Kaladin, but I could give you a good full house by the end of the book. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll get there when we get there. All right. Uh, but I know who's going to play Mary-Kate and Ashley. <laughs> so they, uh, they do a little bit of training. We get our first example of the shield going on. Which yeah. Is pretty so, cool. Uh, when I first saw it, I'm like shield. Okay. He's shield belt is kind of weird, but like, you know, like maybe like a big wrestler belt or something. It's not a shield that you hold. No, it's, not at all. It's like a, this is a, some super sci-fi tech shield we're going with. So it like coats his entire body. Yeah. Yeah, you, uh, it is, um, we'll, we'll take a little sidestep and go into shields for a second. Uh, this is going to touch on everybody's favorite spaceman, Holtzman. Holtzman! Space yeah. Jesus! I.V. Holtzman. Uh, so his Holtzman effect that he discovered it comes in a couple different phases, and it's based on how many dimensions it's using. So I'm going to go through these uh, four different setups for you. There are four different interrelated forces is how it's described. So the first one is called uh, a point source, high, uh, point source Holtzman effect node. They have uh, no physical existence, but they occupy a definite space. 
Okay. And this is how we pull off the suspensor nullification effect. And we've been doing this for, they'd been doing it rather for thousands of years before Holtzman came along, but they just didn't understand it or how they were doing it and didn't know what they were uh, manipulating. Holtzman kind of figures out all the equations to tell you what is going on uh, in this interaction. So that's your basic one. Holtzman then like uh, extrapolates upon these and he discovers the other things we're able to do with this ability. So, you know, we can nullify, do this null space and make gravity kind of disappear, so right. to speak. Like with our uh, our uh, our floating orbs, what are yeah, the, the, the globes. glow globes, the suspensor globes that like uh, the Baron uses to right. lift up his fat self. Yeah, he can just float. Uh, so the next step up, we have one-dimensional Holtzman effect waves, also just colloquially known as a Holtzman wave, and these allow interstellar communication and communication with a ship uh, at faster than light travel. So the Guild Highliners, while they're going, we can talk to them through this like wave. It's a really, really long wave. Um, and then I'm not sure how it interacts other than that. Okay. But it allows us to communicate faster than light and talk to a ship that is moving faster than light. Hmm. Moving up one more dimension, two dimensional Holtzman effect planar incarnation. This is a defense shield. The two-dimensional okay. Holtzman effect planar incarnation. All right. So, I'm not going to be the only one confused on this. No, but just now we're extrapolating that wave and we're making it into planes uh, that are just formed over your body. Uh, in the movie, they take this very literally and they basically, the shields are like a series of boxes that form over all your limbs. Okay. Uh, for the sake of this, I, I imagine it very being much more, uh, shaped to you and streamlined, right. uh, and match it up, but it, it just is like right over the, you know, a layer of atoms from your skin. You are fully protected with this. So seal. it's like a second skin almost, but it yeah. goes are all your like equipment and what you're wearing. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It does like kind of magically adhere to everything around you. Okay. Uh, and then once it's on, they kind of react, uh, it sounds take on a different quality because it affects the sound waves going through things it. Things are muffled. Yep, things are muffled. The smells go on a little differently. Um, if two shields touch each other, they generate ozone, uh, mm -hmm. so which is also a pollutant. So these things are bad for the environment. <laughs> and then a little thing I can tell you that they don't talk about here, but uh, we have las guns in this world. Okay, so, like laser laser guns. weapons. Yep. Okay. And there's a neat little thing that happens if a laser hits a shield. Okay. It creates an atomic, uh, the equivalent of an atomic detonation for both the receiver and the shield wearer. Right. <laughs> that's, there's just like this catastrophic right. like reaction between them both. And this is one of those things we touched on in our, our little timeline on uh, evolution oh, okay. of technology. Yeah, okay, so you are a little... I'm, I'm starting to remember a bit. I, I was very drunk during that, and I don't remember a lot, Derek. And it, obviously you had nothing to I remember like, inform that you when we started that I one. just remember the name Holtzman, and he was my hero, and it was a tragedy when he died <laughs> and uh so those are the four different interrelated forces that create the holtzman effect mm -hmm. uh just let you know where we are for shields all right uh but they're kind of cool and then as a mechanic uh paul goes through and very thoroughly explains them obviously for the reader and it comes off as very condescending for him to be telling gurney all this <laughs> right <laughs> it's like well then what does he say he doesn't really say anything does he uh gurney 
No, no, Paul. What's oh, he Paul. say there? What's well, he, he say tells you like, oh, you've forgotten the first rule of facing like, a shielded yeah, in man sh- in combat. In shield fighting, one moves fast on defense and slow on attack. And it's just like, yeah, yeah I know. I, I taught you. <laughs> it's like, I, I showed you how to do that. Yeah. Uh, but it is a great like introduction for how this um, mechanic is going to work in the book. Uh, so when you have a shield on, it will stop anything fast moving right away. So a bullet is useless in this world. But a really slow-moving blade, or uh, I think you've probably seen them come up like that. It's one of the guns that Gurney drops is a slow pellet stunner. Oh, I, did, I think I missed that. Yeah, so that is like a ranged weapon that goes just slow enough that it can go through your shield. It's a Nerf gun. Pretty much, yeah. That kills! <laughs> a Nerf gun with a gom bar attached to the end <laughs> that's of it. A, yeah, um, that sounds pretty dangerous. That, that'd do it <laughs> every time. Um, so they go through, uh, they start training, and... You know, Halleck's kind of happy with him. Paul pulls off a good move. And they end up at, uh, I think that was when they're pretty close to right on each other. No, I don't think so. I think he says, like, uh, you were you were, uh, you were were careless. I should wipe your backside for that. Like, I think he does the opposite of that. Oh, yeah, Paul, he got the timing right. Yeah, yeah. But he leaves, uh, he could have easily got his hand back up and killed him. Yeah, yeah. So he gets chagrined and he goes back. And then Paul does his great line for this chapter. I guess I'm not in the mood for it today. <laughs> oh, uh, Gurney gets so angry with he that. Does. And I think this gives us another good insight. Like, these lines are so tailored for each character. Mm-hmm. And this one I really colors him good, where the first thing he goes to is that mood. Mood's a thing for cattle or making love or playing the balisette. It's not for fighting. Those would just be the first three things that come to <laughs> Gurney's mind. <laughs> uh, cattle, making love, and playing the balisette. And we know he does two of those things. Yep, so yep. I don't know how he feels about cattle, but they must be his <laughs> third favorite thing in the world if it makes that list. Uh, so then uh, Gurney, he, I mean, he's here to be a teacher. Right, uh, right. He pushes Paul. He pulls out, uh, what does he grab off the well, table? Well, yeah, Paul says, oh, I'm sorry, Gurney. And Gurney says, not sorry enough. This is all the first time that Paul, we've seen him apologize for anything. He's been very uh, confrontational, especially with Gaius. Mm-hmm. I, I was going to say the best we got out of Gaius was him giving her the second bow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The bow of he equals. Does, yeah, he doesn't care for her. Yeah. Yeah. So he does apologize to Gurney and Gurney comes right at him and he starts pressing this attack and he's going harder and harder. He just has that kinjal. Oh, yeah. And I think Paul for a moment thinks like, oh, my God, is he actually trying to kill me? Yeah. Is this betrayal? And so that's an interesting one that Paul would even like. Really good that it does trigger in his mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, that needs to be a thing he's aware of. And we've had uh, the dangers of the world are what everyone is telling Paul about. It's and been ground into him. He knows about poisons, about how terrible Arrakis is, mm-hmm. never putting your back to a door. Mm-hmm. And so he keeps his ground up and he looks around the room and he comes up with a plan right quick, too, which mm-hmm. I think is really cool for letting us know what Paul, how fast Paul minds work. Paul's mind works and he sees a table in the corner and knows if I can get Gurney by that table, when he goes to pull with the rapier for whatever side he's coming at, he's going to hit that table right. and I can use this uh, terrain to my advantage. So what they're, they're doing is they're, they're slowly, I mean, just to sort of paint a picture in my mind, they have rapiers in one hand and like, uh, was it Kim Jaws? Kim so Jaws? Gurney, Gurney picked up the Kim Jaws and went at him. Paul has the rapier and then he slips out, um, I think it's called a bodkin, mm-hmm. into his left hand. 
And Gurney like lets him know, oh, you need a second blade, and he keeps striking at so him. So these strike. are just different n- names for, or new names for like different types of uh, weapons, like bladed weapons. Mm-hmm. So basically like daggers or like long daggers or curved daggers, like things that maybe you don't see yeah, every I mean, day here. Uh, we Well, actually, we might as well do the extra research and we'll post uh, each of the weapons on. Uh, okay. I know the Kinjal especially is a specific thing, uh, and it was used in like... Um, I was talking to you about this group in the Caucasus. Uh, there was a Arab prince that had fought back the Russians, and mm-hmm. their whole culture was all about the Kinjal, and you were naked if you didn't have the Kinjal on. So that is a weapon that's got some history to it. Okay. Um, so yeah, we'll find all these and put them on, but I know that one is special enough, and it's going to be actually the weapon of choice, it seems, for the Imperium is the Kinjal. Really? Yeah. Okay. I wonder if there's any significance to that. Yeah, it must be something. Uh, he always seems to pull from like a cultural illusion. Uh, Frank Herbert did in his mm-hmm. writing. Now, I was saying that Paul was leading Gurney over to that corner of the room. So they're fighting around. Like I said, everything is moved out of this room except for like the table and the, and training, the dummy. training dummy that <laughs> looks like how out of parallel. <laughs> and Paul pulls it off. Gurney goes to do this move and he hits the table with his sword. With or, his rapier. With, yeah. Is it, yeah. yeah they, I think he, or does, does he not have a rapier? Is it just the Kinjaw? I don't know. I mean, it might be. Uh, I don't know, Splitting man. hairs to, we're on the third cup here, one. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling it. But nonetheless, so uh, Paul's plan works. He's able to stop Halleck, and he brings his blade right up to Halleck's neck, stops an inch from the jugular, mm-hmm. and this is like, is this what you wanted from me? And Halleck, again, with how awesome this guy is, he's totally proud of Paul. Like, yeah, you did good, but. Look down, boy. <laughs> Paul looks down, and there's a blade right to his groin. Right. And Gurney lets him know, like, this would have been the end of us both. But No, he's proud of him for, like, you know, you did better than you were before, you know, with your mood. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting. Uh, again, what year was this book released? Uh, 1965. 65. What? I mean, today, if we were to see this scene, it would be a very... Uh, cliche kind of action and situation um how many things that come out that uh prior to this book that had that same sort of action like was this one of the first like, instances like like a sword fight that ends with both of you haha yeah ah. or like you someone has the obvious like upper hand and then you see like oh like i would have gotten you too no i i think it's gonna be a pretty old uh trope i mean i don't know so that's why i'm asking yeah that. no uh so like uh, one of my other favorite books is like The Count of Monte Cristo. And okay. Like, I can just imagine things happening. That was a very swashbuckling tale, like The Three Musketeers. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know for sure, but I just want to say I can imagine a point like that occurring there. The sword play kind of reminded me of Three Musketeers, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, yeah, they're like battering at it, kind of moving around a room. Like, mm-hmm. uh, Dumas really played into those kind of things, and they're going like, I, I, that's what I love about the Three Musketeers. Mm-hmm. It's very fun, but unfortunately, this isn't a Three Musketeers podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so we won't dive into it. <laughs> we won't, but I do love that book. Um, but yeah, overall, I, I think it's a, it would probably have been a cliche at that point, too. Okay. Um, and Gurney then, uh, they kind of split up, and... He instructs Paul to go over to that dummy that's been in this room this whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we finally get to see it light up. And Gurney goes behind a, I think it's like a little console that you can use to manipulate this dummy. And I'm not sure exactly what the dummy looks like. Because it does, it has these crystal. Who fear how it, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> I'll beat up. <laughs> but it says it has these like crystal prisms all over it. Um, that were kind of dormant in the mm-hmm. beginning of it. So those are what activate. And I just don't know what that looks like. Um, 
if it's supposed to send reflections back or something to Paul and distract him. Uh, but Ber- hmm. Gurney starts activating this and Paul is moving with great speed, great finesse, but he's doing moves that Gurney didn't teach him. Duncan Idaho didn't teach him. So where did he learn these things? And these are like Bene Gesserit moves or a sort of a culmination of he, all of Paul's training. He realizes that he's sort of developing his own style of doing things and studying mm-hmm. and practicing by himself. Yeah. Which, again, it makes him a little bit proud and impresses him. Mm-hmm. At least I think so. Yeah, and I mean, I think it shows us a little bit more of the capabilities of Paul. Mm-hmm. Uh, where we are just slowly learning of all the skills he has. And this is one of the times where he's exercising it and showing us what he has. Right. Uh, we're not just meeting a teacher who's telling us about it. And now it's time for Gurney to his mind to wander a little bit. Everybody else had their wool. moment. Yeah. So he goes a little wool gathering in the saddest way, unfortunately. Because uh, he is thinking about his uh, his sister uh, while he's training Paul. And I think it is because his affection for Paul. Mm-hmm is going to be similar to his affection for his sister. Okay. Because, uh, he, again, he's watched Paul. He's raised Paul. His whole life. Mm-hmm. And he very much, uh, he had a young, Annette was his younger sister. Uh, does it say her name, actually? It doesn't. Okay, so her name is Annette. Annette. And uh, that was his younger sister. And he's very sad. So she died in a Harkonnen pleasure house. On Gaiety Prime. On Gaiety Prime. And Gurney just can't remember if she loved pansies or if she loved daisies. And that's what bothers him the yeah. most. And I, I love the tragicness of that. It's like, he can remember her name and her face. He just can't remember what she liked. And that's, Oh, that is really sad. Yeah. And he's in, it's clear. It's just, it's so important to him. He understands obviously why he's not like blaming himself for forgetting, but he's sort of like disappointed. And I think it is also in a way, um, the less he can remember about her, the more dead she is. Oh, man. You know, like, that's a slippery slope. Right. What's next? Like, when can I not recall her face to my memory? Or her voice. Mm-hmm. So it's no wonder that Gurney has aligned himself with the Atreides house. Um, no, not at ha- all. He hates the Harkonnens. Um, and it, it, he has a scar. Was it? They call it, like, an ink vine scar across his jaw. Yeah. He got that from a slave pit on Gaiety Prime as well. Like, yeah. They call it, against some gladiator, I think, like, called the Beast. Ooh, yeah. Uh, I so like I said, I got a the whole Hawa or I'm sorry, the whole Halleck backstory to go into. But yeah, it was a um, remember uh, Fade. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, so I told you Fade was the nephew of the Baron, right, and the son of Abelard Harkonnen, and he has a brother named Glossu Raban, the Beast. Wait, oh wait. So the Beast was. The- uh, is uh yeah is it's Fadroth's dad? Fadroth's brother. 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 He is an older brother. Okay. Who he was originally going to be try you know, uh would have been a potential for heir. Right. But he's just a big lug. He's just crazy. Yeah. He's well. I mean, he's a Harkonnen, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fair point. <laughs> like, fair how point. Are you gonna color that. You can say Piter's a bit crazy, but <laughs> we know. keep him around. Um, I guess uh. We, we got one more thing in this chapter, and let's dive right into Halleck, because I, I think I do actually really want to get this backstory for okay, you. Yeah. And we'll dive into the, the um, slave pits and everything on Gaiety Prime, but we're so close to the end here, because Halleck has uh, one more thought, and it's uh, one of my other great lines from this book. Uh, it's a line from his mother. 
And he sort of mumbles it to himself. Something you want, you want that to read he, that? Yeah, he says it when uh, he feels the blackness of tomorrow on him, which is just such a poetic line in its own right. Uh, no, go for it if it's your yeah. favorite, Derek. Uh, if fishes were wishes, we'd all cast nets. And it was his mother's expression. Uh, he always used it when he felt the blackness of tomorrow on him. So keep that in mind when we get to the slave pits again. Yeah. Uh, and then he thinks, what an odd expression to bring us to a planet that had never known seas or fishes no water no fish and i mean that's yeah. sort of reinforced uh from paul's dream where again he's uh he relayed a gurney halleck song to that mysterious girl right he had to explain or a poem it had to explain all the parts mm-hmm. what a seagull is yeah just anything related to water you don't know this one um let me fill you in mm-hmm. uh he's always got galatian girls he does. It's, I think. I feel like that's always his go-to. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a safe one. Yeah, it rhymes. It's Except easy. in the presence of Lady Jessica. But that ends chapter four. Did you have any uh, any solid impressions coming out of that? Solid. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, there's a couple things I wanted to touch on. Honestly, I mean, I want to learn more about Gurney Halleck's past. But uh, the opening uh, monologue speaks about. Uh, all the people within uh, Muad'Dib's life that trained him early on. And in particular, they mentioned five people. And we, we went through, we've gone through most of them at this point, except for, I think, uh, the Duke, Leto, and uh, Dr. Yui. Mm-hmm. Um, and says that these were the people that really shaped him. I, I forget the exact quote. But um, when he's talking with uh, Gaius Helen Mahayim, she actually speaks about five key parts to ruling a planet. Oh, and yeah, I was yeah. thinking it was an interesting correlation of how there was five and five. And if you could apply um, what she mentions as like the five things you need to rule a planet to those teachers. And if he's being taught those five things in his lifetime, did you try to line them up? Uh, I, I did some guesswork cause we haven't met two of them yet. Yeah. Yeah. So you have nothing really yeah, to go on for. But, them, uh, but so the, the thing she says is uh, the learning of the wise, the justice of the great, the prayers of the righteous, the valor of the brave, and all are as nothing without a ruler who knows the art of ruling. So I put the ruler as Duke Leto. Solid guess. Yeah. For the one guy you haven't met yet, I yeah. think you got that one right. Yeah. So that just leaves uh, one mystery man with Dr. Yui and the three we know. I put Lady Jessica for the prayers of the righteous because the Bene Gesserit are a religious organization as well. Okay. So that sort of made the most sense to me there. Uh, learning of the wise. I mean, again, I don't know Dr. Yui, but he is a professor of some sort. Uh, doctor, I'm going to go with learning of the wise yeah. for him. So, so far, I, I think you're two for two. Like your reasoning is right on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, justice of the great and valor of the brave. Now, this is going to be very difficult because, oh man, Thufir and Gurney. I want to say valor. I want to say Gurney. Oh, Mike, you're right. Yeah. And that leaves Justice of the Great. And he is the greatest Mentat of his time, more or less, is what we've established with Thufir. Now, I will put one thing out there. Okay. Okay. What about Duncan Idaho? We don't know about Duncan Idaho yet. Because there are actually six people in that list. Dang. Okay, that Uh, is fair. But... He's not yeah. here right now. <laughs> Herbert wrote this book. He put that quote in there for a reason. He put this list in this chapter for a reason. I if think he it's... wanted me to know Duncan Idaho, he could introduce. We would have met Duncan already. Yeah. No. Uh, 
they don't. Uh, I don't think they are meant to correlate uh, directly with that. Probably line, not. Probably but not. The uh, your Gurney Valor one. Mm-hmm. I do want you to remember that. Okay. Uh, just keep that one in mind. All right. You did really good with that. Uh, but that is another one. Again, guys, Hella Mahayam, Zen Master. Just lets you know all these great <laughs> things in really cool, well-written ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because uh, I like uh, when she does make that statement, she's sort of like uh, each one of those is a finger, and then she balls it into a fist, and then says like, "But needs to know how to rule," mm-hmm. and it's sort of like using them all to make this happen. Right. Uh, it was great. Um, with that, I'm gonna take you down. This Halleck backstory. Yeah, tell me about Gurney. I love this guy. Okay. I mean, if I had to choose between Holtzman and Gurney, it's going to be hard. Okay, if uh, gun to your head, like yeah. you had to choose right now, what would you choose? I would choose the Holtz- bullets to my head. Oh, <laughs> if you wouldn't choose Holtzman? <laughs> Mike, always choose Holtzman. Space Jesus would save me. Yeah, I'm just going to, I'll let you know that as the one who's going to read the story <laughs> to you down the road, like choose Holtzman. Even I want to do that. But Gurney Halleck's great. The Gurney speaks to me, though. Let me, uh, we're going to start just uh, his title for this. All right. He is uh, the war master for the Atreides, along with Duncan Idaho. So he shares that title. And he was really glad when he did, because when Duncan Idaho came on, he had more time for music. <laughs> that was exactly what the book says. He got to play his songs more. So he was stoked. It's like being the backup quarterback. It's like, I can get all the glory, but I get to chill on the bench. Yeah, yeah. he's like, I've already done a few seasons. Like, you take it, kid. Um, now to rewind. So he is the eldest son of uh, August and Ultora Halleck. And they are from a house miner on the planet Chusuk. Okay. Fourth planet of Theta Salish. Forget that. Yeah. <laughs> How many planets have we gone by? I don't know any of them. Well, uh, that would be, that's a star. So oh, that's the, a star. The, so that's, I don't, yeah, yeah, that, that's like <laughs> even the more ridiculous point. Like, you should remember Chusuk. Uh, that's a planet. But the star, I just think it's funny that they throw it in for oh, us. Oh, man. Uh, now, his, uh, this planet was known for crafting musical instruments. Ooh. That is the main thing they exported. Uh, they, I got three here. Now we know the Abalaset. Okay, yeah. Now the other two, we get to kind of figure out what it is. Um, I barely can make out the second one. It's called a, a Sailashorn or Saleshorn. S A L L E S H O R N S. Sounds like a Salashorn. Sal- is that a real instrument? Uh, no. Okay. But yeah, Sal- <laughs> Salashorn? Yeah, sure. Uh, is there anything that sounds like to you? Yeah, I think you would just know more musical I mean, instruments I, than I, I. Describe it to me. I don't know. That's all I got. So by the name, name alone. Yeah, yeah, that's like, it has to have some root in it. I, let me go to the next one then. The next one, I think we can pull out what it roughly is. Because uh, it's called a lyra flute. So well, maybe the first one is uh, Salaho- uh, Salashorn then. Oh, yeah, like yeah. horn being definite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and then so uh, L-Y-R-I-F-U-L-T-E-S. L-Y-R-I. Lyra F- flute? Yeah. Okay, so that makes me think of... Is, is a lyre? Yeah. Yeah, so I imagine like something like that with a flute aspect going into the center of it or something. Hmm. Or, or being like... Uh, maybe into the bridge. Uh, but like... I a, don't know. I, I think a stringed flute. Uh, that's that's kind of what it reminds me of. Oh, I don't know. So it's kind of cool. We can... Uh, sail ashore and we'll get to the bottom of that someday. <laughs> is that in the encyclopedia? Like... Like it's literally it just... It's those three are listed under the Halleck entry. Okay. Uh, so there's nothing more to describe them or go into. It's really, right, they brushed fine. past it. And I was like, I knew they weren't going to be real once I knew that Balaset wasn't real. And 
again, for the last decade. You thought these were real instruments. Just the balisette. I was sure a balisette was a guitar, was like a medieval guitar. That well, just, it's, it's funny because medieval guitars actually did have nine strings. Yeah, and well, and that name just it doesn't sound that foreign. But that was just my ignorance. That's, uh, that's kind of funny. So carrying on. So they're on this world. They create these uh, musical instruments and uh, they export them. The family produces them, and Gurney was expected to take over the family business when he grew up. Now, he has a brother named Kyle, mm-hmm. and then a oh. sister <laughs> named Annette. So, space names, if we're creating that yeah. hierarchy, <laughs> I think we found the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> it's Kyle. Uh, Gurney, uh, he didn't want to be a businessman, though. Mm-hmm. Not much of a businessman. Do you know what he wanted to do? What did he want to do? He wanted to be a traveling entertainer. For a major house. He's just a bard. Yeah. So this is in the year. Uh, oh, I, I kind of skimmed right past when uh, Gurney was born. But so Gurney is born in 10135. It's about 60 years ago. Right. right. Uh, like I said, he's 56 uh, when we're starting up. So in the year 10154. So Gurney is about 19. Okay. This is when he's telling his parents, I don't want to go into business. I want to be a musician. I just want to play my instruments. Yeah. 19 he years old. He pretty much runs away and joins the circus. Right? Well, he didn't really get the chance to. Oh, no. This is where the darker side of our story oh. starts, starts to set in. Uh, the next year, in 101.55, House Harkonnen makes an attack on House uh, Euterpe. Now, that was, was that his family? No. So his it was uh, House Halleck is a minor house. The major house of that planet was House Euterpe. Uh, so they were the ones who owned Chusit, and Gurney's family was a minor house on that. House Harkonnen attacks them because uh, House Utupre, they're allies of the Atreides. Oh. And then they also are, are a weak and undefended planet. So the Baron had just appointed his nephew, Glossu Raban, as a military leader, and he's kind of trying him out. So this is the first time Glossu Raban is being like sent out and is representing the Harkonnens. Okay. And he does this raid on the planet Chusuk uh, because it's undefended. So the Baron was like, I want you to, you know, go do this, but I, I don't want it to be a challenge. You know, we're Harkonnens. So just go raise hell. So they come down, they attack. They destroy, I think, like two-thirds of the industrial center on this planet, wiped out. They take 50,000 captives during the raid. Uh, this includes Gurney and Annette. They kill at least 500,000 others, Ooh. including every other member of the Halleck family. Wow. So the Halleck line is essentially destroyed. It's just him. Gurney and his sister Annette are taken prisoner. Mm-hmm. So she is with him in the beginning. They are taken back to uh, Gaiety Prime. And once they land, the groups are separated into three categories. Mm-hmm. Uh, capable men are taken to the slave pits. Beautiful women taken to the pleasure house. The third group of children, the elderly and the discarded, mm-hmm. are all executed oh. in front of Raban. He is there overseeing this. Now, Gurney is, so he's separated from Annette at this point. She's taken off to the pleasure house, and he never uh, is able to discover the fate of her while he's there. He is on Gaiety Prime for 10 years in a slave pit. Oh, my God. The average life expectancy for a slave, five years. So we never got to see outside of that beautiful room. Well, we were on Harco. This is what it looks outside. You know, smog, industry. There is an emerald mine 
on the outskirts of Harco, mm-hmm. where Gurney spent 16 hours a day mining for emeralds. Oh, my God. But he didn't let this get him down. Uh, while others would kind of wallow in despair, Gurney just turned inward. This is when he started, uh, he would reflect on the music that he had learned on Chusik. He started writing his own songs all in his head, just running these poems through, creating new ones. That was how he dealt with his pain. But kept the sanity. Mm-hmm. And then this is also where he learned to fight. And it wasn't that he was fighting the Harkonnens or this. He was fighting the other slaves because they were in such desperate conditions. People didn't have enough food. They didn't have enough resources to survive and were forced to fend or feed off of each other at times. Uh, oh, my this, God. Not, not cannibalism, but just stealing from and they would be violent towards each other in desperation. Okay. Slightly better. Instead of like, you know, overthrowing this harsh force that's on top of you. And he's like I said, he's survived these 10 years, uh, nine years go by. So this is before he ends up getting off in that 10th year. Obviously, he, he does live. He gets back to the Atreides somehow. Do we know? Yeah. Do we know how he escapes? We do. I, I'll get to that. Um, but in this year, the year before he escapes, uh, Raban is moving up in the ranks and he's coming through and doing a tour of um, the slave pits in Harco. Uh, so I think this is the first time he's in charge of Gaiety Prime for a little bit, mm-hmm. or at least put in an administrative role there. Okay. And so he's doing a personal review of the slave pits, and one of the guards there or something points out Gurney to him, because, uh, you know, he's from this first raid that uh, Glossy made a name for on. himself. Yeah, well, Gurney is the sole survivor at this point. No oh, one else is alive. Annette's already dead? Life expectancy. Uh, we don't know what about uh, for the male slaves. Oh. Uh, like I said, the life expectancy is five years in the slave pits. Okay. Uh, basically, uh, we have no idea what happened to Annette at this point. Uh, she was separated, taken to this pleasure house, and we just kind of follow Gurney mm-hmm. on his ride through. And they pull him up. He gets to be brought up in front of Raban. And the people tell him, like, uh, these other slaves, is being like, oh, don't look him in the eye, you know, look away, da-da-da. That's not how Gurney rolls. You know, mm-hmm. you know what Gurney does? Just punches him? About as close as you can get. He looks him dead in the eye. And just doesn't look away. Stares Raban down. Raban, looking at him, goes, Don't you realize you could be flayed for such disrespect? And Gurney doesn't have any words for him, but he does spit in Raban's face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Raban... And uh, just to give you a comparison, he's only two years older than Gurney. Gurney's 20. At, uh, Gurney is 29 at this point. Okay. So Raban is just a little over 30. And he is furious. His face goes mm-hmm. beet red. And he turns to the first guard that's there. And he grabs from his hand an ink vine whip. What, what, is, an, what is an ink, ink vine, vine whip? Oh, that's how he has the, the ink... Inkvine scar. Oh, so it's an actual. I thought that was like a way to describe like the color and shape. So it's an actual item. Yeah. yeah. So for the longest time, likewise, I was right there with you. I imagined like what you would imagine from a fountain pen making like the a color shape, of like, this liquid here. Oh yeah, it is definitely like beet red, and that it would just kind of vary in its width a little bit, and it goes right along his jaw. Mm-hmm. And uh, every time Gurney grins and stuff, they always describe his uh, scar kind of moving with it and making this writhing motion. And the ink vine, it grows on Gaiety Prime, and it is actually a plant. It is a super aggressive plant. It's this really hardy vine that grows out on the underside that is shadowed from the sun 
these very strong barbs grow outward and they secrete a hydrochloric acid as well as some, they just refer to it as multiple poisons. This is just a violent plant. Mm. Like, what does it, like, what is the predator to this plant that it has to produce all of these terrible things? I I don't, yeah. For what used to eat this, I couldn't even tell you, (laughs) but it is meant to grow on anything. It melts into stone, it melts into glass, and it will just crawl its way up. The vine itself is as strong and durable as leather. Uh, So that's why you're able to use it as a whip, as just the raw product. Um, Wow. So they take these and they use them uh, for enforcement on Gaiety Prime ruthlessly. I don't think it's used much more else in the Empire. It's kind of fallen out because it's so brutal and oppressive. And the pain that it inflicts is just a level I don't think you could really imagine or appreciate. So in this chapter, Paul makes a comment looking at that vine, or looking at the ink vine scar on Gurney Halleck's face, mm-hmm. and he realizes suddenly, and this is after he questioned um, his loyalty and thought maybe he had betrayed the house, mm-hmm. uh, but that that scar had to have been formed with pain, much like the Gom Jabbar, and think of what that must have formed in the person. And I think he kind of transfers uh, that Gurney is a human mm-hmm. also because of that. But the pain that the ink vine uh, puts on you is that hydrochloric acid cutting in and it causes burning for several hours. And once the burning has subsided, it can ache and pain oh. for up to six years. I need to look up the name. I think it's called a yucca. There's a tree. Oh, where does it grow? I think it grows in like marshlands, but there's a tree that uh, does something similar. Where if you like touch the tree or its sap, God forbid you like touch its sap, yeah. it will start burning your flesh. Oh my god! I mean, did you hear that? it lasts for six years? The ache afterwards. Wait, six years. So you get pain for several hours, and then you have an ache for six years at least. I mean, Paul had to deal with the box for like a minute. Mm-hmm. Gurney had it for six years. Yeah. So, Raban strikes him with this. Clearly, it strikes right on his jaw, gives him this iconic scar that will, you know, identify him for the rest of his life. And then he does one more thing to Halleck in that he commutes his sentence. So he struck a hark, he struck a hark on him when he spit him in the face. He should have been given the death sentence. Raban wants him to enjoy the caress of the ink vine. Oh my God. So again, knowing it's going to ache for six years, Raban wants him to enjoy that. Instead of killing him, it's just like, Take that with you. Take that, and there'll probably be more. Hmm. Unfortunately for Raban, but thank God for Gurney Halleck, House Atreides, they planned a counterattack uh, for another thing, and striking the Harkonnens, they're not animals. They're not going to attack the people. They're not just going to destroy, you know, populace and infrastructure. Mm-hmm. But they know where to hit the Harkonnens where it hurts. What do you think they're going to target? They're going to release all the slaves. That's exactly what they're going to do. They sent a raiding party to release and rescue as many slaves as they possibly could. One of those men, Gurney Halleck. So he's brought up. They bring them all back to Caladan. When the slaves land, they're given the choice of like, hey, you can join our house or you can just find your family. If you can move on, go ahead. If you join our house, you are free to leave whenever you want, unless we're at war. 
that's the weirdly the only thing where they're just like, but you can't. And then any other thing, it's very much a democracy and we want you to participate. And Gurney Halleck jumps at the chance and talks with the officer. Uh, he makes them agree to one condition, though. What's that? If he could locate Annette and arrange her escape, that she would be welcome to stay with him on Caladan. The guy's like, definitely. And he says that, though, knowing that her fate uh, was probably that she's dead at that point, mm-hmm. uh, just with how the Harkin and Pleasure houses work. So Gurney joins uh, the Atreides, and it's a huge change in his life. He, I think after he's, sol- he's soldiering from that point, it's the first time he's a soldier. Mm-hmm. After about 10 years or so, he was on the war council for the Duke Leto and very uh, moved into the highest ranks of, he learned quickly, was respected, was trying, was obviously super loyal to him. He took on a protege a couple years later, one Duncan Idaho. Oh, he trained Duncan? He did. And that's when he was so happy that Duncan did so good that he had a second war master and Gurney went back to playing music. (laughs) You do you, Duncan. I'm just going to chill over here. And, uh, it does let you know when Gurney moved back, it took him a while to actually pick up the ballast set when he came back to Caladan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's out of the slave pits and he didn't have confidence. He didn't know that he would remember how to play. Mm-hmm. And it says that he slowly started playing and it built and it built. And then he got back to the man we know now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he remembered, he was surprised at how much he had remembered from his childhood, uh, being that 10 years that he didn't get to play. So playing the ballast set is a, a- one of the few things he has that links him back to his family. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to such an extreme extent. Uh, his father probably was awesome at the battle set as well. Hmm. His whole family definitely knew how to play. So probably all of those things definitely contribute. Now, that's Gurney Halleck, and that brings him up to the present. He did learn the fate of Annette, though. Oh, how long did it take afterwards? Uh, so he learns in 10176. So that's going to be or 15 years ago from our present. Okay. So, so he's pretty, about so 45 years old. I was going to say about when Paul was born, he would have learned this. So that's actually okay. kind of sad. And maybe a transfer of affection. Too. Oh, wow. Uh, and he didn't get any satisfaction. So he never saw her. Um, but an Atreides agent was on Gaiety Prime doing infiltration. Mm-hmm. And he befriends a Harkonnen who has this gnarly scar across his face and neck. And... One night, just through their conversation over a drink, uh, he learns a story of how that guy got that scar from a Harkonnen pleasure house where he had left his belt on the side of a table and the girl grabbed the belt or the knife from his belt, slashed at him wildly, and then fell on the blade herself. Oh. And that agent, uh, he knew Halleck and knew about Halleck's sister. I assume everyone in the Atreides, like, especially that was trained by him, would know that backstory to him. Okay. Uh, It's just part of his legend, you know? Right, Like, why he's there. And he, through other means, confirmed that that was Annette that night in that Parkin' and Pleasure house. And he basically devises and arranges to implicate that Harkonnen as a double agent, knowing what the Harkonnens will do to him and that he will suffer a fate worse than anything that happened to Annette. Then he sends a report back. uh, So all that gets back to Halleck, Mm -hmm. uh, making sure Halleck knows that this is what happened to your sister and that man is surely dead. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to Halleck in the present. That's the man that stands before Paul and starts training Mm. him. Wow some loyalty yeah 
That's a crazy story, too. Now, that's just one of them. There's another man that had another wound in this room today. Oh, yeah. Thufir uh, had a slash across his leg. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't that given to him by one of the older dukes? Is that what it said? No, it was uh, in defense of the uh, what they oh. call the old duke. So Paul's grandfather, Duke Leto's father. Uh, this one's going to be a little bit shorter. I have less on Hawat. Uh, he wasn't as cool of a guy. He had a very straightforward life. Mm-hmm. But he does hate the Bene Gesserit. So Thufir Hawa, again, 121 years old. We're going a little further back in time now. Gotcha. Because we got to go back like 100 years. Um, first to nine children to Golani and Awidi Hawat. Awidi? Awidi. Uh, yeah, I don't know which one's the male and which one's the female there. <laughs> it's Golani and Alwidi. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. How its mother was Golani. Oh, <laughs> can just read one more line oh, there. Just keep going. Uh, so his mom uh, had been trained as a mentat. She mm-hmm. didn't finish it, but no, uh, because she had that training, she could see that Hawa had potential right from the start. Okay. And she just spares no, no expense. Gets him the best teachers on every subject in the Imperium. And just starts filling this boy up with information. Mm-hmm. He gets to his um, adolescent period and uh, kind of like what we're going to see with Paul. Because uh, I told you Paul's a Mentat. And, or, yeah, yeah, or yeah. training to be. Training to be, yeah. And eventually you have to inform the Mentat that that's what's happening. And the Mentat has to choose to keep going. So they do this for Hawa. And he is stoked. And he goes to the Mentat school on Ix. Uh, so that's like the best school there is. Okay. And there he makes a friend. Uh, his best friend is named Colinar, And he meets a beautiful woman named Anya. She okay. is the daughter of a Bene Gesserit and an official in the, Imperium court, in the Imperial Court. Okay. Now him and Anya kick it off. And he falls head over heels for her. All right. And it's probably the happiest time of his life. That time ends. And oh, no, okay. we, we don't really know why. But Anya and Kolinar leave Ix suddenly. Oh. Yeah, that's so the illusion is there. Well, then again, maybe uh maybe that was her her destined path or whatever. Maybe that um she was part of some sort of breeding line. Uh could be. Uh so she was she wasn't Bene Gesserit, she was just daughter of the Bene Gesserit. Oh, daughter. I thought she was Bene Gesserit. Ooh, but this could be so this is oh, this could be the Mentat Bene Gesserit. Kind of talking about before, you know, if there had been one. Uh, oh. She would definitely have potential. Uh, Lord knows if her mother followed the rules or not. Um, if I know Benny Jezzerin <laughs> following rules, I'm going to say no. Uh, but so we just know that this really affected Hawa. In, uh, he has another friend named Roos. is uh, kind of his lifelong friend after this point uh, mm-hmm. that does keep in touch with him, even through the period that we're in now. And I guess in a re- cryptic remark that Thufir makes to him, uh, and this is very terrible and did not age well for our era, but he says, the female of the species is without doubt incapable of fidelity. Oof. So, yeah, uh, it was Camelot come again, they say. Jeez. Poor Thufir. So he just really allowed his pain and his pettiness to just kind of eat away at any love he did have for her. And it just becomes hate. He became a bitter man. Yeah. And he has this distrust, I think of all women going forward. <laughs> he never loves again. Uh, Jeez. But I think this feeling is why he doesn't trust the Bene Gesserit. Uh, and 
could be something that Piter knows. And I could see that being a function of Piter's plan for why, why Dang. he's trying to make her, him uh, turn against Lady Jessica. Yeah, or why that's at least such a possibility mm-hmm. uh, that he thinks Interesting. she can boom. I wonder how Piter would have found that information out. Uh, I don't know, potentially from this Roos character. Uh, maybe they took him and they could have kidnapped him and just tortured him. Uh, it was probably not through a nice way. <laughs> I know Piter. I know Piter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so by the time Thufir was, uh, 35, that's when he joins the Atreides on Caladan. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the first time I get to introduce this guy to you. Uh, the grandfather, the old Duke. The old Duke. Yeah. His name is Duke Mintor. And this is the one that Gaia said was, you know, that man had, uh, was it, uh, bravada? Uh, yeah, like, I was gonna say swagger, but yeah, I think it's like bravura. <laughs> yeah, oh, something like that, yeah. Uh, yeah, do you know, do you know why he's so cool? Tell me a story. Oh, dude, he's a bullfighter. He's a bullfighter? <laughs> he's a bullfighter. <laughs> the Duke is a bull, so the guy in charge of a plan is just like, yeah, I fight bulls, whatever. Slowly, it worked up to that way. So, Hawat is, uh, brought on to this Duke, and, uh, this Duke is... One of, uh, I mean, the Atreides line has been there for so long. Um, mm-hmm. This guy, though, wants to get the estate, this Castle Caladan, and the estate that it's on. It's like a big little kind of city-state almost in the area it takes up. He wants to get this thing running as efficiently as possible. So he just puts Hawa to it, and Hawa goes over basically every facet of production on Caladan and ramps it up to a 10. Uh, he's changing how we're doing everything. The efficiencies go through the roof. Uh, importing and exporting various things, bringing in experts to develop the you know the infrastructure of the planet, okay, and just really that enhances the uh, the Atreides standing. And amongst these things, uh, the Duke uh, he becomes obsessed with the bull breeding program. The bull breeding program, yeah, and he just like pours money into it oh no uh now at first uh the guy that was in charge of the bulls did not want to teach the duke anything (laughs) about them because he's like if i hurt this guy like i am screwed but eventually he just had to cave and uh, allow mentor to like you know basically go into the ring with these bulls so his name is what again uh, they call him Duke Mintor, and his uh, full name is Minotaurus. Yeah, okay, I was gonna yeah. say, like, <laughs> I've seen a correlation here. Yeah, uh, I think with uh, all the history stuff, it's a little less polished than the rest of Probably. stuff in Dune, where it shows through a little That's bit That's how more. we choose to remember in history, but at the time, he's the bull guy. He's the bull guy! He's so cool! <laughs> uh... So Hawa is one of the ones responsible for vamping up that uh, program mm-hmm. and making the bowls even better, I guess. Uh, I don't know exactly what he did to it, but he makes it great. And in uh, to get to the wound, so while he's with uh, Mentor and he's expanding this, we start doing some more skirmishes uh, in the universe and stuff. The Atreides are getting a little aggressive. Okay. And in one off-world, uh, in a skirmish with off-world raiders at one of the Duke's ranches, so this is on Caladan, uh, Hawat dodges a sword and he escapes it. It was going to slash him right into the groin and it slices down his left leg. And so he bore that scar with pain and pride from that day forward. So that becomes he defends the Duke while it must have been Harkonnens attacking the planet. Right. And this would have been in probably like his first 10 years of service. So he's still a pretty young guy at that point. Uh, So Duke Mentor 
uh, he does eventually die. Mm -hmm. And that's when power is transferred and Duke Leto comes up. Now, Hawat had trained Duke Leto since he was like a teenager at this point. Uh, So this is the second generation that he's tapping into. He's already made the estates run like, you know, clockwork. The Atreides are making more money than before. Duke Leto, he's not really interested in making the estates. He does not care about bullfighting. Uh, <laughs> he's concentrating on espionage, defense, and the expansion of his sea and air power. And I think this just, you know, puts Hawat into a golden age where we're both now, you know, these guys have like synergy on what they're building together. Uh, at this point, Hawat is, uh, he's sent to investigate uh, the Bene Gesserit school. And the Lady Jessica oh. uh, before she's brought over as a uh, concubine for the like, Duke. One look, I don't like her. Mm-hmm. He, he did not, but uh, there was just nothing he could do. It, he gave the approval for it. How did it. they arrange that marriage? I don't know. I don't have the specifics. Um, it would have been very much, because you know it had to be Jessica for the Bene Gesserit side, since it's a breeding program. Right. So I think they would have pulled whatever strings they had to to make it so the Duke wouldn't have a choice. Uh, Like sweeten the pot with whatever they had to give the Duke. Um, But in a way, too, that wouldn't make him suspicious. Hmm. Uh, As like as elaborate and perfect sounding as that would be. uh, I don't know how else to describe it. But enough that Hawat didn't suspect anything. I guess nor would he have. Um, But he was reluctant the whole way through. And then, yeah, eventually Paul's born and he starts training the third generation of them, giving the same kind of uh, extensive training that he had. And this is why I think he is so much more attached to Paul than the other teachers, too, is that he's giving Paul Mentat training. Right. Which he wouldn't have given to Leto. Was that under the order of Leto? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it would have been. And it would have been since Paul was an infant. So... I, sounds I just, like Leto like really thinks about like forward uh, momentum and like planning for the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean that kind of influences why Jessica gave him a son. Hmm. Like, yeah, that is his one desire. It seems like he wants this house to go forward, and I don't know what his ultimate plan. It doesn't seem like he wanted to take the Imperium or mm-hmm. you know anything by force, but I think he did imagine himself leading the Landsrad for sure. And being equal almost to the emperor. Um, but I, I don't know. Uh, Leto is such a kind of paragon of virtue in what we see in him because he doesn't he doesn't ever do anything evil. Um, the one uh, line I want to end on here for Hawat's backstory is the thing that he teaches Paul. And uh, security is the core of his instruction to the young Leto and later to the young Paul. And he says, the cost of survival is eternal vigilance. Hmm. That is sort of the uh, mission statement of Thufir Hawat. Damn. Thufir and Gurney, they're just two awesome characters. And we just learned about them back to back in this chapter. I loved every mm-hmm. moment. Uh, and still two to go. Uh, yeah. Duncan Idaho we, and Dr. Well, no, Yoda. I mean three, technically, because the Duke Leto. Oh, Duke Leto, yeah. Oh, the one to rule them all. You got anything else for me? I'm, I'm like desperately searching through to make sure I didn't miss anything. <laughs> I mean, uh, there was a lot. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, both of those, I think that is all I got for you, Mike. Do you have any questions wrapping up that chapter? Um, anything I missed for you? No, I think we went through like all the major parts that I wanted to talk about. I, I mean, I guess that only means one thing. What's, what's that mean? It's time for the glossary game. The glossary the game. The glossary game. 
uh, a segment I'm warming up to, Mike. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> it's starting to get in there? Only because uh, as of last week's scores, it is two to four in your favor. Woo! Now, Derek, I, I, I imagine you may be looking through this glossary of late, trying to freshen up and revitalize your knowledge of Dune, but... Yeah, I might be you... reading it every night for a couple hours. <laughs> yeah, I might. Uh... How long, when did you start reading this book? When did you get super into it? It's like uh, 2009. And it is 2020 now, so that's it's a while. I feel like, why don't you rely on that decade of experience? Okay. You, you want me to not, I, not peak? Well, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I have so many words I can choose from, and we cover half of them in the episodes. Okay, I, I think that's a, that's a fair uh, rule you can put in place right. at this point. All right. Give me a fighting chance here. I um, Last week, our words were Baraka and Chiops. Baraka being a living holy man with magical powers. Uh, Cheops being a nine-level pyramid chess, which is, again... you got to end with that queen on top I, and yeah, the you king gotta, in check. Oh, I want to I see this played. I would love to see a board. I looked it up on Google. I couldn't find any like handmade ones. That I'm not surprised. <laughs> um, and I guess I wouldn't understand like how the pieces are set up either to begin with. Mm-hmm. Or like It depends on what the board looks like, I guess, so... Who knows, but I just, I want this to happen at some point. I've got to dig deep that is, into Yeah, it's going to have to be a weekend project for oh, us. A weekend. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I got two new ones here for you. Okay. So this one is a, uh, I went with, uh, I feel like you're going to get this one, but uh, I feel like uh, if we run into it, we'll have a better understanding of how things are made, like such as with Inkvine. I thought that was a really interesting plant to dive into. Yeah, that was that was interesting. Uh, of one that, like, again, some of these things I do like that uh, I'm finding out as we're going through reading the encyclopedia, where I've gone, what is it, eleven years if that was 2009, like with just complete ignorance of being like, yeah, Inkvine description, standard year, seven, right. so, you know, 365 days, and no, all that completely wrong. <laughs> so, so what's your word? Uh, it is uh, plasteel. Oh, plasteel. So that is a material, and I believe it is just a something that's like as malleable as plastic, but as strong as steel. And they're able to form it into various structures. Okay. How 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 are you that about? I'm gonna say am I missing anything key? I'm gonna say false. Really? Yeah. So plasteel, according to the Dune glossary, steel which has been stabilized with stravidium fibers grown into its crystal structure. Okay. Okay. So it's a, it's basically way reinforced ooh, steel. Ooh, so is that like it's like crystalline steel almost? Am I, well, I'm thinking is is it like the plas like plasma then? I don't know about plasma. It says what uh, steel which has been stabilized. So it's definitely a metal. I feel like maybe you could equate it somewhere between steel and diamond almost because it has a crystalline structure to it. Mm-hmm. So steel which has been reinforced with whatever stravidium is. But it's got fibers. That's all I know. It's got fibers. So uh, I, I mean, I would love to see the description of it when we run into it in the book. But that's sort of my guess, anyways. That's as what it might look like. And in the book, I feel like it's generally just referred to as like a plasteel wall or a plasteel door, and just letting you know that's the material for it. Okay. Uh, damn, that's that's a good one. Yeah. A point for Mike. Yeah, I'd say so. I was I was off. I was running with misconceptions. Yeah, for yeah, sure. yeah. So uh, I'm glad I get that one. All right, we're on a roll. Uh, this next one, we will see. Um, Sirat, S-I-R-A-T. Sirat. Um, can I get a hint? Okay. Just after how that last one went, I don't want to walk into this blind. So it is, uh, oh man, I don't know how to say this without giving you like 
Too big. All right, too all big right. of a hint. Um, I'm, I'm going to say I think it's a noun. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you one thing, and I want you to give me the context, like the content of this. Okay, because I guess I right now I'm telling you I don't know. Okay. For all sure. Right. Like, I can't pull anything off. Sirat. Oh. All right. We'll see. We'll see here, because uh, it might be a victory for me, but I want to give you a fighting chance as well. I appreciate that. Sirat itself is a passage in something called the OC Bible. Uh, and I just want you to know uh, to tell me what that passage has to do with. Oh, man. And the Sirat itself is also uh, an idea or a, a word within this passage. Is, yeah, so it's a passage in the OC Bible that is about, um, does that have to do with like time? Um, oh, no. I, I, yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess maybe in a metaphysical sense. This is just like... No, nah, I mean, I just want to say something about like knowing your place within time or the like finiteness of all things. Nah, I think, to a close? I nah. think I got you on you this do, one. You do, you do. What, what is it? Give, so, me, give me a book definition. Sirat is the passage in the OC Bible that describes human life as a journey across a narrow bridge, which is the Sirat. <laughs> I hate you so much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, no, it's it's the journey across the bridge is the Surat, not the bridge itself. Not the bridge itself. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Surat bridge. Uh, but the idea is that uh, life is a journey across this narrow bridge with paradise on your right, hell on your left, and the angel of death behind you. <laughs> That's kind of great. It is kind of great. I was wondering why it's so focused on a narrow bridge. But when you, when you throw in the angel of death behind you, you're like, oh, I get it. Okay. <laughs> That's why we were so specific about the bridge. Um, but what, what is the OC Bible? That one, I don't know. Ah, then it gives me a chance. <laughs> uh, the OC Bible is where religion is sort of the culmination of religion in this universe. Uh, so we know that Zen and Sunni Islam have formed together to make the Zen Sunnis. Okay. Uh, and that's going to be kind of what the Fremen follow. We know the Bene Gesserit have pulled the strings in every religion. The OC Bible is the Orange Catholic Bible. Orange Catholic Bible. Oh, um, Helen Geis Mahaya mentioned something about that in the first chapter. Is she really? Yeah, she said straight out. Oh, when Paul's mentioned something uh, about thinking machines, she says straight out uh, of the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Butlerian Orange. What was it Orange something Bible? Uh, it would have been the Orange Catholic Bible. Orange uh, Catholic. Yeah. Why uh, is it orange? I don't. Uh, there is a reason. Uh, I will find it out for you. So we're not going to go into the backstory of that too much. Okay. Uh, the OC Bible is actually going to show up next chapter, Mike. Oh, so hey. You are, you are one page ahead. Hey, man, I'm picking some good words. I'm yeah, happy about yeah, this. You're, you're onto it. All right. Um. Well, so that that ties us up there. It's now four to four in the glossary game. And really, I just wanted to even it out to add tension <laughs> to the next game. Add a little uh, dynamic here, some tension. Yeah, I, I did too good last week. And <laughs> <laughs> karma has come round to strike me down. Um, if anyone got any of those questions, then pat yourself on the back. You did very well. Those were kind of tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, congratulations, me. Yeah, congratulations, congratulations <laughs> Mike. You did great. <laughs> <laughs> I did it, guys. But that's going to bring us to a close for this week. Oh, uh, man. I got something ready for you next week, though. Oh, yeah? What yeah. do we got to look forward to? Next week, we're going into Chapter 5. Okay. Like uh, last time, we're not leaving this room, Mike. We're going to stay in the training room uh, for quite a bit. <laughs> oh, no. Honestly, I think it's we won't leave the training room until we leave Caladan oh, at this point. my word. But 
Is everyone just coming to visit Paul? Oh yeah, they're gonna come through that door one at a time, single file. Oh, my gosh. Uh, each one leaves when the other comes in. <laughs> but do you think they're all just the same person, but like wearing a mustache one day and like a hat another? If Paul didn't have the Bene Gesserit training a minutia, I think he would be. <laughs> but he's too good. He would see right through that. Um, but next week, though, I got you. We're going to meet our obvious betrayer. We're going to okay. come face to face. Paul's going to accept Jesus into his heart. And, Mike, we're one chapter closest to Arrakis. Oh, how, how close are we? How many chapters we got? Oh, it's like two or three. Oh, my gosh. We're going to finally get there. It's still not enough I'm, uh, where it ends up being half a month for us. I am really excited about that. Um, so anyone out there, if you have a question for us or know a wine we can afford, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Spice World Pod. We also have an email at SpiceWorldPod at gmail.com. And you can also find us at our new website, SpiceWorldPod.com. Thank you, Derek, for all the information today. Uh, Thank you, Mike, except for the glossary. (laughs) Everything else is splendid. Everything else. Oh, man. Uh, And thank you, everyone, for listening. Until next time, the the spice spice must flow. One place over, we're on Caladan still, but yeah, we're one week after the ordeal now, which confuses me time-wise, but we'll talk about that, I guess, on the thing. Okay. Uh, for when he's supposed to leave the planet. I thought we were one week away then, but we got one day left, so maybe a week in a colloquial sense. Well, did we determine a week is six days? Damn, Mike. You're learning. <laughs> you are digesting information. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> I just blew your mind there. You second. <laughs> saw it in your eyes. Switch seats. Like, oh, yeah. Now zone. I'm the master.